Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, ladies. Hello, gentlemen. This is the Victor Davis Hanson Show. I'm Jack Fowler, the host, the star and namesake, Victor Davis Hanson, is the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. This uh, particular episode shall will appear after Memorial Day, but we still want to honor in some way all those who paid the ultimate sacrifice. Hope we'll have some time to do that at the end of the of the podcast, Victor. Though uh, this couple of, I mean, so much has happened this uh, this week, and uh, news is breaking about a debt settlement. I don't know. If we should really talk about that, since who knows what the particulars of that will be. But uh, I think a good place to start um, our discussion today is about the Department of Homeland Security's program to fund colleges and other institutions to attack conservative media and conservative organizations. And Victor, let's get your thoughts on that right after these important messages. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. First, Victor, I, I do want to apologize if there's a snoring sound in the background. That's my dog, <laughs> George. I'm sorry. He's got. Are you trying to are you trying to suggest that the Victor Davis Hanson podcast does not have professional infrastructure? <laughs> we are uh, a garage band of podcasts, Victor. So someday, it's all the remarkable. Someday, someday we'll. Yeah. We'll be, we'll be we'll reached up. <laughs> we'll reach the big leagues. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, uh, often I think probably right now this podcast is in the top ten of the political podcast rankings of of the country. So not bad, Victor. But then it's because of you. So ne- not never mind the 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 way this is uh, recorded or engineered, so Victor. I want to read this um, article, uh, the beginning of an article, and this comes 
out of a um, an investigation by the Media Research Center. And it happens, folks, that Victor and I, uh, two roughly two weeks ago, had lunch in Washington. We were both there for the uh, Bradley Prize Award ceremonies. And prior to the awards, we had lunch, and we had lunch with Brent Bozell, who's the founder of Media Research Center. And Brent told us there was some bomb that they were about to drop exposing uh, the government's uh, funding of anti-conservative uh, anti-conservative media efforts. So here's the story, Victor. And if you let me just read this, and then please, you have your uh, uh, give your analysis. Headline is how Biden's Department of Homeland Security is weaponizing an anti-terror program against Christians, conservatives, and the GOP. Um, media research, free speech um, has learned how. The Biden administration is weaponizing a government-funded anti-terrorism grant program in an effort to destroy conservatives, Christians, and the Republican Party. Under the Trump administration, the, quote, Targeted Violence and Terrorism Prevention Grant Program, TVTP, was used to prevent terrorism, but it was revamped under the Biden administration and renamed to provide funding for localities to combat, quote, all forms of terrorism and targeted violence, end quote. Instead of focusing on preventing actual violence and terrorism, the program is now being used to target the entire spectrum of the political right and Christians through, quote, media literacy and online critical thinking initiatives, end quote, and other so-called training seminars as part of a coordinated effort to make America into a one-party system. One last paragraph here, Victor. The University of Dayton, one of several grantees, targeted groups including the Heritage Foundation, Fox News, Christian Broadcast Network, Turning Point USA, PragerU, National Rifle Association, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The um, DHS victor to round this out gave out 80 grants at the behest of Alejandro Mayorkas, uh, who called this program a high priority. I think about 40 million bucks has been allocated to this, Victor. I apologize to the listeners for the long read there, but that's the setup. Maybe many of you don't know this is going on. It is. It's truly troubling. I don't think we are surprised, though, that this Biden administration is doing it. Victor, what are your thoughts? Well, my first thought is what Napoleon said, if you're going to take Vienna, take Vienna. If you're going to impeach Alejandro Mallorca's, impeach him. You had a lot of reasons to impeach him. He deliberately and systematically destroyed federal immigration law, and he would not enforce it. And when you let somebody continue to do that, uh, then you would expect that he would also make high priority of taking millions of dollars, I guess you said $40 million, and go after people, including that list, I think, was the RNC. So here you have a Democratic president funneling money through Homeland Security to go after or to monitor or to demonize its political opponent, the Republican National Committee. But more importantly, uh, PragerU, I've done videos for those, and, I, and in fact, two of them have been banned by YouTube, but they were just on Vietnam and Korea. It's a historical series that offers a non-woke, non-PC alternative. So this thing is pretty wild. And I remember watching some news accounts of that this week, where one of the participants in this 
government-funded conference bragged, A, that he was in Antifa, and B, that what he was advising the congregation there was, quote-unquote, illegal. So that seems to me conspiracy to commit a crime. Maybe they could even get him on a rac- uh, they could even get him on a racketeering charge. But it's as someone who paid thirty seven percent of my income all the way to probably April or May. I work. Uh, so all of you listening, you worked from January to April or May and got nothing, and you gave it to the federal government that funds stuff like this that is nakedly illegal and uh but then the other thought i had is what does illegal mean today there was a story uh lulamon that company and that's headquartered in atlanta i think they fired two of its managers who called 911 on uh habitual shoplifters because right. they, it's lululemon I yes lululemon yeah so We've, we're, in our, we're entering a brave new world now where what is the law nominally is not, in fact, the law. We don't know what is illegal or what is not illegal. If you're on a subway and somebody is threatening people and he's, it turns out he's a career felon and he has 42 arrests and you try to subdue him to protect people, you're going to face manslaughter if he dies. And on and on and on. There's a big case in San Francisco right now where we had a transgendered black shoplifter, habitual criminal, threatened a security guard who was also black security guard, thought that he was being attacked, shot him while the person was in an act of committing a crime. And there was an outrage uh, from the trans community that he was not charged with murder. And to the credit of the new DA in San Francisco, she didn't charge him with murder. She didn't charge him at all. But my point is that we're so far over the cliff that we anything is possible in this country now. The laws we once understood it no longer exist. Right. And in this case, the idea that the federal government would allow an and would pay an Antifa participant to brag that he was advocating things that are against the law. And it was about creating dummy groups disinformation to use the leftist word the other thing about all this is where where does all this stuff come from where does the idea that you're going to create internet apparatuses to go after prager university or breitbart news and then and the answer to that is the same place where we got this idea that a biological male with testicles and a penis and a muscular skeletal male body could just declare himself female and then sweep all of the awards in a female sport and destroy the aspirations of hundreds of girls or women and the answer to that is the university that's where it all starts critical race theory critical legal theory critical gender theory all of that which then begs the question what are we doing with these universities and we're going to talk later about uh, University of Florida, uh, New College, uh, Austin, uh, University of Austin, perhaps. But my point is that something has gone terribly wrong with their universities, and they are indoctrinating, and they're not teaching people. So we are creating people to be ignorant activists, ignorant and arrogant activists. They don't have time in the school day to understand history or philosophy or literature or science or math, because they are spending their time on 
non-existent disciplines such as black black studies, gay studies, leisure studies, environmental studies, and they're all activist studies is what they are. And so we should we shouldn't we shouldn't discount that that the time span, the trajectory from the faculty lounge were two tenured nine months out of the year working professors with maybe 10 to at most 10 to 11 hours a week in class are dreaming up ideas and then getting grants to write about them. And then that's craziness in that laboratory called the university to the federal or state government and to us, I think is about three or four years. It's it's that's what's so dangerous about it. And that's why on this podcast, we've talked so often about why in the world we do not tax university endowments because they're not nonprofits. Why in the world is the federal government deny? Uh, why is the federal government backing student loans when we had their one point seven trillion dollars in, in arrears? And more importantly, all they do is shift the moral hazard and ensure that the universities up their tuition faster than the rate of inflation. Why do we do that? And so we could easily stop it. We could just say, you know what? The government's out of student loans. If you want to have student loans, you better tell the student how many years it talk, it takes to graduate and what happens when they default on the loan that you back for your own tuition out of your endowment. And that would that would really end. I don't think Stanford would have 16. Stanford University wouldn't have 15,000 administrative staff if the students had no student loan. I may be wrong, but it, ultimately, the whole point of this is it's the university, the college, higher education that does stuff that prompts or fuels well, conferences like this. Well, and and creates business majors who then go on to become the heads of Lululemon or the marketing. Disney. My wife, I was well, true, but on the Lululemon thing alone, just to get my wife's fetching on the air, I was told her about this earlier, and she says, "You know, she doesn't shop there anyway." But says, "Screw this place! Like, why am I? Why would I shop there? Anyone who shops there is subsidizing the permitted thievery. It's just like shopping at Target. It's which." As we know, and I know you've talked about it before, Victor, and you were on, had a great conversation the other day with Megan Kelly on her podcast, but it's fine, permissible for thugs to go and, and raid Target, and we're supposed to shop there and essentially subsidize this. And if you have the temerity, as you pointed out, as of an employee to try to stop it, you're going to be fired. I mean, just freaking insanity here. It, it is, um, and and I think I think what's happening right now, though, we're right in the middle of a, re a counter revolution. And when you're in such a sta state, you don't know what's going on. But I, Sammy, always asks, you know, about positive news. But there is some positive news, and that is the conservative traditional American is waking up this week and thinking, you know what? I have power. I didn't know that I did. I don't I I have power. Bud is selling on Memorial Day a case of beer for $3.99, Jack. They can't give it away. <laughs> they can't. Well, it's going bad. They have to get rid of it. And Target is panicking. Is it seven billion or eight billion they've lost in stock and ten. sales? As ten. of today, ten, ten, ten billion. billion. Yeah. Disney. That's a, that's a lot of money. That crazy Iger guy who said he was going to come out of retirement to save the company has only made it worse. It's in free fall. And the point is that everybody out there 
knows that when they do this, Target puts cod pieces on children's clothing, or Bud has this Mulvaney character nominally, incidentally, hawking beer, but really in the commercial, I just watched it, he brags about how many days he's come out. And that's supposed to make you think, wow, I'm sitting in a I'm sitting in a a bar in downtown take Dayton. I'm in Dayton, Ohio, and I see on the bar TV that Mr. Mulvaney says it's, it's 185 days since he's been a woman. I'll go out and buy that beer right now to support his transgenderism. That's crazy. And everybody's waking up now and they're thinking, not this pig. I'm not going to do this. And they're finding out that they right. actually have power. They have power right. because of the majority. And all they have to do is focus it, focus it. And they don't like to boycott or ostracize right. Argo. But once they do, they're very, very effective. And a lot of these are women, especially on Target. You go into a Target and majority of the shoppers or mothers are buying things for their children, especially in the summer, back to school. And you get them riled so that when they walk in there with their three-year-old or two-year-old and they're looking for children's uh, girls' play suits and they see a fold-down codpiece for testicles and a penis in the women's section and they are told that there's no difference between a transgendered woman and a real woman. And then they think, well, if there's no difference, why do they have cod pieces suddenly now on these? And they get angry. And Victor, I, I think, I, I, yeah, the other ahead. thing is very quickly, and Sammy and I talked a little bit about it. Where does this come? I think this is really important that we all go to, you know, what the Romans called the fawns and the origo. The origo, the, or, the origin and the font where does this start where who thought this up where did target get this idea where did bud get this idea right they are drawing people from the university in this case the school of business and don't think that the school of business is some right-wing enclave under assault by a left-wing universe they are completely woke politically correct and they are churning out masters of business degrees that go right into the corporate world, especially from the so-called elite colleges, Harvard Business School, Berkeley's Business School, Stanford Business School, you name it. They go right into the highest ranks. They have never sold a bar of soap in their life. They've never driven a delivery truck in their life. They've never had to stock a shelf in their life. They've never had to run a 7-Eleven in their life. They know nothing about business. But they go right into the hierarchy of these corporations. And when they arrive with this university imprinted indoctrination, they start doing things like, hey, there's a bunch of old white guys and, you know, (laughs) they're all dying off. We got to reach out to the transgender. That's a huge constituency and even bigger, the people who support it. Let's get Mulvaney in here. Talk about how many days he's been a woman. That'll be a big seller. Or they'll think, wow. Uh, I mean, I'm my uh, I'm brainstorming at Target. I just got my MBA from Stanford, and here I am in the halls of corporate power. I got a suggestion, Mr. CEO. Why don't we put cod pieces on children's clothing? It would be a big winner. As soon as a mom saw that, she'd just think, wow, there's an ad in the paper for a cod piece at Target. I got to go there. 
That's where I'm going. I'm not going to go to J.C. Penney's or something. I'm going to go there and get that cod piece for my daughter. That's that is insane, and that's that's what these people are from the schools of business. Well, if, if, you know what? I I can't talk too much because of my position no, at the Hoover no. Institution, but oh, I okay. will. But I will say one thing: that when you look at job applicants in economics or business, the traditional fields that everybody focuses on, which are absolutely essential for the running of this country, finance, trade, currency, interest rates, fiscal policy, they're not so common anymore. They're hard to find people with PhDs and MBAs in those areas of concentration. You know what they are? They're called cultural economics. How many black people are Uber drivers? What is the rate of promotion of transgendered people on Wall Street? That's what they're studying. And when they get into the halls of power, they have no affinity, whether abstract or real, with the consumer. And now we see whether it was canceling the All-Star game a couple of years ago in Georgia or, you know, United or, or American Airlines, they all take a hit. But this time they're... They they look back the CEOs and they said, ah, you know what? It's going to be like a quarter, maybe, I don't know, a month right. of down sales. But the publicity will be good because all the left-wing community will rally to our stand. They have never experienced a permanent hit. And this thing is going right. on and on and on, rippling well, through. Right. Victor, if I may, it's not only the initial act. The, the Mulvey, Mulvaney commercial or the initial exposure of the, this cod piece, uh, you know, outfit, which is also for, you know, for women as opposed for, you know, children. But it's the responses that only make it worse. Bud's response was a lie at first and then trying to uh, recoup its image with uh, the, you know, Clydesdale horse and the 911 faint and then uh recently i think in the last week or two they've cr created some new commercial like bud with with harley davidson and no one's buying it and this people makes are it worse angrier yeah because they're angry at the lie and then they think you guys are such ponies you think we're gonna fall for that you're insulting yeah. us even more the bud driver thinks okay so you're running clydesdale horses well why in the hell weren't you doing that six months ago you're only doing it because you screwed up. You hate Clydesdale horses and what that represents. You love this stuff. And now you're, and you hate us, but now you want our money. So now you're running Clydesdale and they're saying collectively, screw you. Same thing with the Los Angeles Dodgers. They, how can it, it reminds me so much, these corporate lackeys of what the Soviet Union did, you know, for most of its lifespan. They issue the party line. The first LA Dodger communique was, how they were going to celebrate diversity and trans people on this pride day. And they were going to get the sisters of perpetual indulgence and how wonderful what this group was. And then the counter revolution came and they kind of dropped it. And they, then they did the communique. Don't remember, don't remember the first communique. This is now the operative communique about we're sorry. We're so sorry. And then some guy, they brought in probably some accountant a guy who's really knew something and said, you know, well, this is the number of Latino Catholics that come to our game. These are the traditional American constituency. These are the fans. 
uh, I'm sorry, but somebody didn't tell you that the constituency that's going to come out for Pride Day to celebrate women dressing up uh, and simulating sex acts as nuns and priests is very small. Okay, let's get let's do that. And then the Hollywood stars call up the Malibu people, the L.A. philanthropic donor class, and then they send in another communique. Oh, sorry. Well, it's just like the Clydesdale horses. People say, you know what? Screw them. Screw them. And I think that's going to happen well, I, I more and more and more. I, I, I hope so, too. Yeah. And I hope. But I think Victor, everybody, I, I we're think, still, we're still I think getting. A number of our, go ahead. We're still getting used to go the ahead. fact that in this country, it's very hard to acculturate yourself to the fact that it's the Pentagon with its woke stuff. When Lloyd Austin flat out lied to Matt Gates under oath when he said there were no drag shows on these bases that were being subsidized. Or it's the FBI when Andrew McCabe lied four times under oath. Or it's the corporate boardroom that is doing this. And everybody says, well, corporations are conservative. God, I remember Coca-Cola and I remember General Motors and Goodyear Tire. They were emissaries of American. No, no, they're not. The FBI is left wing. The Pentagon brass is left wing. The CIA is left wing. They have all been body snatched and they are woke. And it's very hard for moderates and conservatives to accept that, that the corporate boardroom and Wall Street are with especially with ESG are doing stuff that furthers the decline and de and decay of this country. And it's it's, it's, right. it's just mind-boggling because they are on the same wavelength as these transgender performance artists or Black Lives Matter, which is a crooked, corrupt organization, or Antifa. Right. And if you think I'm lying, there's an Antifa person there bragging at the conference that's being subsidized by the, the U.S. government, bragging that he's advocating things that are illegal. Remember when uh, Nixon's enemy list mattered uh, to uh, to no, the left, Victor? No, and, no. Uh, Just read. I always, I take my club and beat this dead horse. But go read February two thousand twenty one article by Molly Ball, Time Magazine, bragging how the CI CEOs and corporate boardrooms and corporate America aligned with Antifa, DNC, Silicon Valley money to turn on or turn off the demonstrations. And it was all coordinated. It's all there. She, it's not me. She uses the word cabal and she uses the word conspiracy. But her point was that Wall Street and the corporate world thought Donald Trump was a danger to their way of life or their values. And so they joined these various left-wing groups to ensure that uh, there would be a lot of money and a lot of effort to change the way we vote. I'm not talking about traditional politicking. I'm talking about the change the way we vote by funding things like truth, get out the vote, i.e. drop boxes, or more inclusivity, or i.e. ballot curing, ballot harvesting. That kind of stuff. That was corporate money that did that. And it's I think they really they were much more effective when they were under the radar and they were just in the shadows 
uh, trying to subvert things. But now their their arrogance and hubris got such that they're out in the open, openly doing it. This character at Disney, Bob Iger, you know, he came in and after they fired the other guy out of retirement as if he was going to be a savior. And he was he's more left wing than the guy he, they fired. And he's into a mano to mano macho thing with Ron DeSantis. And he's trying to he's going to run that. He's going to run that company in the ground. Walt Disney would roll over in his grave if he knew that guy was the CEO, CEO of his company. Yeah, I think Walt Disney was a subscriber to National Review, and I know his brother was a donor, and uh, one generation uh, uh, of the family even has gone um, perverted, and not, never mind the uh, the people no. who hired. Hey, um, uh, Victor, we have, you mentioned um, DeSantis, I uh, mentioned New College, and, I, and we have a couple of stories, maybe we'll just mash them into one. Uh, Scott Atlas gave a... Uh, commencement speech at New College and what happened to him and then Ron DeSantis and versus Trump. It's all kind of goes together. And let's get to that right after these important messages. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson show. I was negligent, Victor, at the outset of the show to usually say that you have an official home on the internet, the Blade of Perseus, which uh, has a web address of victorhanson.com. And I would like to recommend to our listeners, old listeners who have heard this many times and still have yet to do it, new listeners who are curious. Oh, I didn't know Victor had a website. Well, he does. He writes a lot for it, a lot of original material exclusive to the website. And you should subscribe. Uh, they're called Ultra Articles. There's many other things on the website, links to books. By the way, look for the link for the Second World Wars, Victor's best-selling um, uh, uh, history book of, of, I think it was about six or seven years ago. I, I just want to recommend it. It is an exceptional book and makes an exceptional Father's Day gift, so do consider that. But anyway, you'll find books, Victor's other appearances on other podcasts, radio shows, but you won't be able to read the Ultra articles. Subscribe. $5 gets you in the door. $50 discounted for the full year. That's victorhanson.com. So, Victor, uh, let us let's let me take it this way. Uh, we have this um, Federalist uh, uh, article by August Mayrat who who describes what happened, what uh, Scott Atlas said when he gave the commencement speech at New College of Florida. And for those who don't know this, New College of Florida is a liberal arts school that earlier this year, Ron DeSantis, um, as governor, empowered to do so, threw out the board of trustees and put in a conservative board of trustees with his, his uh, the end game here is to transform this woke college into, I don't want to say a Hillsdale, but just a, a good liberal arts college, not something that's hell-bent on turning your children, grandchildren into communists. So uh, the the new president, uh, I forget his first name, Corcoran, he's the former uh, Speaker of the House of um, uh, in Florida. Anyway, they invited um, Scott Atlas to give a talk. 
And here's what happened. He was Scott Atlas was heckled at the at the um, commencement. Hey, it's still it's still a leftist school. They got a board of trustees that's become conservative, but the student body's still still woke. If you don't mind me, Victor, here's what Scott said. And I think it leads into the next part on DeSantis and Trump. uh, Scott Atlas said, under two administrations, Trump and Biden, the United States management of the pandemic was a failure in deaths per million against the worst compared to all our peer nations. A straight line of increase in deaths per day from March 1st, 2020 through April 2022. Two full years, no change in the slope of that line, even after the vaccine became available on December 16th, 2020. Now, this is back to the reporting. Uh, Myra says, such brutal honesty drew loud boos from the crowd. Toward the end of the speech, students eventually drowned out Atlas, shouting, wrap it up. Ironically, this happened as Atlas encouraged his audience to save their country by committing themselves to the truth. And his final thing I'll read, Scott Atlas, I'm quoting him. We desperately need leadership that unites, not divides. Leaders with a moral compass, who know right from wrong, who believe in strong family values, leaders who are not afraid to defend our precious freedoms, America's hard-earned freedoms that uniquely provide opportunity sought by millions the world over, leaders with integrity, or this country as an ethical society, as a virtuous society, as a free and diverse society, is in serious trouble." So, Victor, um, Scott's your pal. Um, we've talked about him before on the show. You had him on a special podcast. I think that's a, he gave a great speech. It, and I'll, I'll shut up in half a minute. It layers into DeSantis and COVID because obviously Scott's um, where he was a warrior was on the true effects of the shutdown, the, the lockdowns. Anyway. After DeSantis announced this past week that he was running for president, Donald Trump attacked him. And he attacked him in part many ways. In one ways, he was saying uh, Florida's record on COVID was was one of the worst in the nations. And DeSantis punched back. He was on the Glenn Beck radio show, and he said uh, Trump handed the nation over to, to Fauci, which I think is quite a you know quite a punch. And and may have some, it's true. It was handed over to him, although not you know intentionally handed over. Anyway, Victor, we have this college. Uh, we have DeSantis, Trump. We have Scott Atlas. Big ball here. What are your thoughts on all this? Well, um, there's so many issues here. The first issue is the left has now formally and de facto redefined free speech as heckling. And if this is happening at every campus, and administrators won't stop it because they feel that you can interrupt somebody and heckle. I should say, excuse me, not somebody, people on the conservative side. If a bunch of conservative students from a review, let's say Stanford Review, went into a climate change public lecture and went up to the podium and screamed and yelled and said, I hope your daughter's right, they would be expelled. Let's get that clear. And they should. But this is an asymmetrical practice. But heckling now to the left is their new fad of free speech. So they thought they can, with impunity, scream and yell and ruin the graduation ceremonies for other people, which they did with impunity, which they did. So that's the first thing that's going on. The second is there's been a lot of research this year. And just this week, a study came out. I think it was a guy from the University of Edinburgh with an American colleague. And they did a meta-analysis of all global accounts. I don't mean accounts, but scholarly studies of the lockdown. 
of the lockdowns. And they came to the conclusion that a complete lockdown and mask wearing in terms of deaths per year from any cause did nothing. In other words, if you locked down your entire country or you opened it up like Sweden and you looked at the num excess deaths per year, there were no more excess deaths in Sweden. And in fact, Sweden had a lot of less excess deaths. That was number one. Number two corollary, and we had a scholar at Stanford at the Hoover Institution that studied extensively the effect on education. And the meta-analysis of these studies show that depriving children of two years two formative years and their early education is not recoverable for years, for years. And in the case of high school and college, it will affect the country as this kind of like a rat and the snake as it works its way through. And three, there's been a lot of studies that spousal abuse, alcohol abuse, increased uh, incidence of cancer from missed screenings, suicide they've all gone up and for the george floyd riots which i think did more to damage this country than anything since 9 11 that was a product in part not all but in part because of the paranoia fear of covid shouldn't say paranoia because there was a legitimate fear but locking that entire economy down and doing it selectively selectively and by that, I mean, if you go out and demonstrate in May and June, excuse me, early June of uh, 2020, and you're breaking curfew and you're not wearing a mask and you're uh, contrary to all the tenets of the lockdowns and quarantine, but you say you're marching for black lives, you will get 1,100 healthcare professionals to say that that's more important for your mental health than the worry about all the idiots who are locked in their house following the quarantine. So all of that together, that in e unequal uh, application of the quarantine, it was a downside. It was terrible. It did damage. And we know that's true. You know how we know it's true? Nobody's taking credit for it. Anthony Fauci shut the country down and used to brag. You don't see Anthony Fauci today saying, I want to hold a press conference. There's a lot of erroneous information, misinformation, disinformation going around there. And it suggests that my lockdowns, my quarantines, my mask wearing, my suggestions you wear two masks, my suggestions you get three boosters, all of that did not mitigate the effects of the virus. That's just crazy. There's no evidence. He, he doesn't do that. What, what does he do in state, Jack? He, instead, he says, there's been a lot of misinformation around that I somehow played a prominent role in shutting down the economy and quarantining the whole country. and and suggested that, you know, two masks were better than one. I don't remember me ever doing that. So nobody is taking credit for it. And that should always tell somebody that the policy, even if it was well-meaning, was disastrous it, for the mental health and the sanity and the stability of the United States. Just the Zoom culture, just the Zoom culture that arose, when you walk down any major downtown, just go into Los Angeles or San Francisco here in the West Coast at peak commute time. They're empty. That was a result of the lockdown. The riots were the result of the lockdown. 
all a lot of these pathologies were. And I don't think we're going to recover for years. And the people who advocated it will not take ownership. So now we end to the third ripple, and that is DeSantis and Trump. I don't understand. And I wrote a book called The Case for Trump. I don't understand what Trump's strategy is in attacking DeSantis on the lockdowns. And when he said DeSantis had a horrible record uh, of deaths, well, the only way you can calibrate deaths uh, from COVID is by deaths per 100,000 or per capita. And even if you didn't adjust, Jack, for the fact that elderly people were the most prone to die and per capita, there was the most elderly people were in places like uh, Arizona or Florida. Right. That that was not true what he said. He, He didn't have the third or fourth. I mean, there were states like. You know, Arizona, I think it had the highest number of deaths per 100,000. West Virginia, New Mexico, Alabama, Tennessee, Kentucky, New Jersey. And if you, you know, if you keep going, it's it was not that much different than Georgia. New York was, I think, 398 and Florida was 403 deaths per 100,000. There was no difference, but there was a difference. And that is Florida kept its economy open. It grew. It brought hundreds of thousands of people kept arriving to go to Florida. They wouldn't have done that if it was completely locked down. It was criticized. The people who are criticizing DeSantis, this is what I don't understand about Trump. He's criticizing DeSantis for shutting things down. I guess initially when DeSantis, for the first three weeks, it was, you know, stop the uh the epidemic or flatten the curve so to speak he might everybody did but after that people were going to what they called the free state of florida because it was more open and he was getting criticized for that remember they were saying he's going to kill everybody they had that ridiculous by trump yeah remember they had that crazy guy that was dressed up as black with a black hoodie and a scythe walking along the beach to remind everybody that you're going to die in Florida because it was open. It's, 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 it's nuts. I remember going in 2020 to Florida a couple of times. It was wide open. And why would Donald Trump then attack a place where he lived, where he knew that? And DeSantis says, well, you get, I have empathy for Donald Trump because when the epidemic broke out, who do you bring out? I mean, he thought, I guess everybody did, that Anthony Fauci was nonpartisan, that Burks was nonpartisan, that the left wasn't really promoting the lockdown for purposes other than health, but to destroy the economy of a sure-to-be-elected Donald Trump, which they were. So he brings these characters out, and they're around him, and they counsel him to do all of this stuff against his instincts. So he does it for three weeks. And then they say, look, it it flattened the curve or something. And they continue and continue in the media. And he feels that if he were to buck them, uh, he would have a public relations disaster. I don't know what the reason was. I'm just giving you a rationale. But the point I'm trying to make is the record is clear. Right. Donald Trump was an advocate 
of a much stranger quarantine and lockdown than was Ron DeSantis, just a fact. And the number of people per 100,000 who died in Florida was roughly around where New Jersey or New York was of, of a similarly, or not too different from California, a similarly populated state with one big difference. Florida has the most elderly people per capita of any state retirement community, and they were the most vulnerable. And yet, A, they kept the economy open, they grew, they had low employment, good GDP, and people flocking there, and B, they did not lose any more than the states that were completely locked down, despite C, they had a lot of very vulnerable populations. There was nobody sending active COVID patients into rest homes like Andrew Cuomo's 15,000 died in New York didn't happen in Florida. So I don't know. I don't understand what 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 Trump is doing there. And it brings up this larger question. We talked a little bit about Sammy, about the strategies of both candidates as we get into uh, the fierce primary. Now that we uh, primary contention is sent now that we have two declared candidates. It seems to me that there should be some type of red line. That is, Donald Trump attacks DeSantis up to a point. That is, you don't completely mock him. You don't distort the... And Ron DeSantis criticizes up to a point. So I, I have a list of check, check, check. Is Ron DeSantis personally attacking Donald Trump? I can't... Is he making fun of his name? Is he making fun of his physicality? Is he suggesting he he was guilty in any of these crazy fraud? No, he's not. Is Donald Trump doing that? Yes, he is. He's the Ron DeSantis. He pictures, you know, maybe he was a groomer, all of this stuff. Next category. Are each of them defending their record and attacking the other record? Okay. Ron DeSantis did not bring up the fact that Donald Trump outsourced the quarantine and the lockdown to Fauci and Burks. And he did that out of politeness originally because he did not want, I'm not, I haven't talked to him of course, but I don't know why he didn't, but I'm glad he didn't because I think Donald Trump was under coercion and pressure and he didn't get a lot of support from Republic. A few that said, don't, don't listen to those guys. But, what turned out to be a disastrous policy took shape under Trump's advisors. And that's why in that graduation address, Scott, uh, Scott Atlas, Jack, he didn't say that the policies of the Biden administration have been disastrous. He said the policies of the Trump and Biden administration, speaking as somebody who was in the Trump administration, the right. Trump administration. What he was saying was, I was there in the White House. I pleaded with Trump and his advisors not to listen to these idiots, Fauci and Burks, because they were going to destroy the economy and create a multitude of pathologies that would ripple through here for generations. And I wasn't listened to. And so when Donald Trump says that Florida is one of the three or four worst states, and that's not true, then he gets the retaliation from DeSantis, which begs the question. I think what we're seeing now is a strategy that 
Ron DeSantis knows that it is not going to help his nomination attempt, nor should he be nominated the general election if he starts attacking Trump personally or unfairly or even fairly, but savagely. However, if Donald Trump attacks Ron DeSantis unfairly and gives him an opening for a counter assault, then people will think, well, he got attacked on that. He's he's setting the record, which finally, right. you know, that begs the final question. Well, why is why would Donald Trump attack something, somebody, something, some issue where there was not support for it when he knows that that would invite a counter assault right. where Expose he was right. where he was so when he says Ron DeSantis, you know, on the budget, well, Ron DeSantis just went back and said, you spent seven to eight trillion dollars in four years. You outborrowed Barack Obama. And, you know, and why he does that, I don't know. But Donald Trump, when you look at that four years, was very successful. And where it was not successful, fiscal discipline, building the new section of the wall, it was because of, I think, legislative realities, getting rid of Obamacare as promised and replacing it. John McCain sabotaged that. Or bringing in lunatics as appointments like Scaramucci, that type of appointment, or all those people in all these cabinets that, that kind of turned on Trump. In all of those cases, you can make an argument that Donald Trump, given his druthers, would have built the wall if he hadn't had internal betrayals and concentrated judicial activism to tie him up in the courts. Or you can argue that he listened to a lot of Keynesian economics uh, experts who said, you know, during the COVID lock, we got to borrow and print a lot of money. Whatever it is, there's a context there. But if you're going to go attack DeSantis, then there's no context as far as he's concerned. He just turns around and says, what? I don't care what the reason was. You borrowed $7 trillion. You were a big spender. Republicans don't do that. I don't care what the, the reason was. You built very few miles of the new wall. You fixed the old wall. Good. But you didn't do the new one. I don't know what the reason was, but you locked down the whole damn country. And that's so I I think Trump's advisors are making a terrible mistake. Every time they attack him, DeSantis personally or something, they should ask themselves, what is going to be the return fire? And where are we vulnerable? And wherever we're vulnerable, we're not going to get into those areas because it'll just invite an attack from you. And right uh i i i don't and somebody's gonna say well, that's victor, sound he, political advice victor well <laughs> somebody's listening say he's 30 points down well he's 30 points down because he hadn't declared his candidacy and there's going to be a lot of people lined up behind him and they're not just big jeb bush donors believe me because yeah, i i get calls from him or emails from him constantly and trump's people are this idea you strangled DeSantis in the in the cradle, I don't think is good advice. I think you debate him on the issues and you say that basically there's a strategy here that both have to that both are employing. Donald Trump's strategy should be 
I have been in the White House for four years. He has not. I created the MAGA agenda and reformed the Republican Party. He agreed that I did that because he was elected governor on the MAGA agenda the first time, thanks to me. I value loyalty. He was my student. Therefore, he can run and I'll be happy to support him. In fact, in, after I'm president for four years, I will be willing to pass the baton to him. That should be his main e efforts in criticism. And DeSantis should be, well, the, we all agree the MAGA agenda within parameters is the proper recalibration of the Republican Party, but we have an age issue in our hands, whether we like it or not. Joe Biden is 80. We're looking at Dianne Feinstein, what we see there. We saw Pelosi. Donald Trump will be 78 years old. He'll be in his 80s. And why not get fresh leadership that would be more muscular with this agenda? That's one. And then a second tact is I get even. I don't get mad. So, yes, Latita James is on a vendetta. Yes, Alvin Bragg is on a vendetta. Yes, Willis is on a vendetta. Yes, Jack Smith is on a vendetta. But who gave him the exposure? Because with the left, you have no margin of error. You've got to be more holy and sanctimonious and clean and everything than Caesar's wife. You can't give any indication. And so when they try to go after me, and they will, they will have a less easy time. It'll be far more difficult. There will be no strippers in my past, that kind of stuff. That's the second argument that he get, he's a, not, we don't like the word technocrat, but he gets things done rather than talks about it. That's the, the second thing. And the third is we've got to win elections. The Republican Party hasn't won 51% since George H.W. Bush beat Michael Dukakis in 1988. It's lost seven out of the last eight popular votes. Trump came in with the House and the Senate and the presidency, and we lost. We lost in the 2018. We 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 lost that margin of error in 2020. We we lost everything, and so we. Trump lost the popular vote in 2016. He lost the popular vote in 2020. He got killed in the 2018. The 2020 were a disappointment. We should have had a big margin in the House. We we didn't get the Senate. That's a legitimate form of attack, and he can extend that to all of them. And as I said with Sammy, I mean, George H.W. Bush lost in 1992 to Bill Clinton, and he lost in 19. Uh, we Bob Dole lost in 1996, and George W. Bush was elected, but he lost the popular vote in 2000, and he barely got 50.3, barely squeaked by a mediocre, inept candidate like John Kerry in 2004, and John McCain got smeared in 2008, and Mitt Romney got beat in 2012 when he should have won, and we didn't get the popular vote. In 2016, and we didn't get it in 2020. But I win elections. That should be his third his third uh, strategy. And then that would be a, a good debate. Each of them have three strategies. Go to it. But 
this idea that you blame Ron DeSantis for the free state of Florida, that he somehow has a terrible record on COVID when your own advisor, Scott Atlas, is down there at New College giving an address where he faults both the Trump administration and the Biden administration for not listening to a policy that he advocated, but which Ron DeSantis adopted doesn't make sense. Yeah, it's and it's fair to say Scott Atlas has been proven right by the evidence. And, uh, and the more that the, he's proven right, the more he's hated. Right. And, and yeah. all of those students that turned his back on them, if you ask them, graduating students with bachelor's degrees, if you said to them, you turned your back on him, you heckled him, you said, wrap it up and you ruined the graduation ceremony. But I want to ask you a question. Would you please, in one minute, summarize the Burke's Fauci attitude toward COVID and how what the social health policy was. And would you summarize Scott out? They could not do it. None of them could. They don't know anything. They just sit out there yelling because they think Scott Atlas is a right-wing guy now. And Fauci is some kind of left-wing heartthrob. Fauci is going to go down in history he, you can see it in his face. There's key moments when that guy knows he's in trouble. I don't mean, you know, I don't mean criminally exposed. I don't mean right now he's going to go broke, but he looks at his legacy and somewhere, some place, someone is going to tell the truth with the expertise to prove it. And they're going to say to Fauci, you sent money and expertise and know-how on enhancing viruses, and you deliberately skirted U.S. law through your partner, Echo Health, and that money and the expertise, maybe even the instrumentation, ended up in Wuhan. And you know that was a leak from that lab. And you tried to cover it up with your cronies at the CDC and the NIH, because we have the emails redacted, though they be. And most of your policy then was based on misinformation and misleading the American people that this was a pangolin bat hybrid. But you would never, ever tell the truth because you, not us, you felt it was self-incriminating. And you secondly adopted a series of policies which you yourself in the past, in past administrations, you had said would not work. And why did you change your idea about masking and complete lockdowns and quarantines and all of that? Was it COVID was more dangerous than H1N1 or Ebola? Whatever it is, give us a reason why you changed. But you did change. And now that we enacted and you got your way and we've learned that it did enormous damage beyond COVID to the country, why won't you man up to? And that's so much exposure on his part that I think it's it's going to his legacy. Yeah, but does he terrible? Does he want to say I I thrilled I thrilled having the power to do these things, which I think is the essence of of an honest explanation by the man who was uh, essentially the venture capitalist for for COVID, you know, through through the uh, those grants. Hey, Victor, we have um, we have a little time left. We're going to take a break and we come back, get your thoughts about uh, quickly, I would say, about new college as transition and, and a forthcoming college in the process of getting launched to University of Austin and then take a few minutes to have a Memorial Day, a proper Memorial Day remembrance. And we'll do we'll do that after 
this final important message. There's something magical about unboxing. When you unbox BritBox, you uncover a world of British entertainment. Stream the UK's most brilliant series, including new and upcoming seasons of Shetland, Father Brown and Death in Paradise. Plus new originals like Payback, Irving Welsh's Crime and Archie, the story of Hollywood's greatest leading man, Cary Grant. Unbox BritBox and escape to the best of British TV. Stream with a free trial at BritBox.com. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. This is Jack Fowler. I apologize for if you can hear it, the snoring dog in the background. But, uh, you know, better George is snoring than barking. So, Victor, uh, the the previous uh, conversation got off the ground by talking about New College. And I mentioned what Ron DeSantis did. Um, just quickly, if you have any thoughts about the uh, virtues or not of him doing that in this place and then also any thoughts you might have uh about the university of austin which is percolating and it's I, i'm sure i'm going to get his name wrong pano canelos who's the uh, he's the president he's the former president of uh saint john university of saint john which is one of the great classical books uh colleges i, I don't know if it was the one in new mexico or the one in in uh in maryland but uh to me, as you know, conservative, someone looking for my our friend Dan Mahoney talks about a parallel polis. You know, the need to create um, alternate institutions. Uh, it's hard to recapture an institution like DeSantis is trying to do in Florida with New College, but creating a new institution. Anyway, both are inspiring. I find it. And what are your thoughts about this, Victor? Well, uh, they're a little different. Ron DeSantis is, was taking New College, which kind of built itself as an experimental sort of a UC Santa Cruz uh, type of college as Santa Cruz was envisioned. And then he recalibrated it. In other words, he rescued it from its its woke kidnapping. But there was the extent there was the infrastructure there. And so now the left is angry because he did what they did. And his attitude, remember, is that when you take a political, a politicized, a weaponized position or issue to nullify it, you have to get rid of the person or you have to get rid of the idea. And then you have to assume the left will say, well, you're doing what we do. No, you're restoring it back to the middle. And that's that's a hard argument to make. So on critical race theory and all of that, he said, we're not going to teach that. And he said, well, you're you're telling us what we can teach. And you said that we can't teach. And then he, you have to make the argument and said, well, you're not teaching history. You're teaching propaganda. So I'm not going to allow you to teach propaganda. And if you want to come back and offer another type of course that's on the history with a nice chapter on slavery or Jim Crow, we'll do that. But see, it's a harder argument to make. So he's being attacked because he's stalking uh, new college with people who were not going to allow the left to take it over. And and that may, that somewhat gives him a little bit more negative press uh, coverage from the liberal media. University of Austin is different because they are starting from scratch. There is no university there. And they've got a very, you know, very prestigious group of people. Um, 
I have some colleagues that are involved in it. Neil Ferguson, his wife, Ann Hersey. I think Larry Summers is in there. I don't know if Steven Pinker left or not. Uh, and their idea is to create a new university from the ground up. But when you start looking at the endowments of even small liberal arts colleges with enrollments maybe of 16, 1800 people or 2000, I'm talking about Brown or Smith or Wesleyan or Wellesley or Kenyon College, you got multi billion dollar endowments for to, to run those budgets. And so, will people give very wealthy people, let's face it, will they give? millions and millions of dollars to fund that are they going to get some donor who's worth 50 billion and gives them a billion dollars i don't know but they're going to need money like that to be a, a flagship university and it's going to be very very difficult to raise money and which begs another question is this the right strategy uh creating a, a university ex nihilo versus desantis taking over one and so we go back and forth. Are they mutually exclusive? No. Should you found new campuses everywhere? Or should you say, you know what? They don't own Stanford University. They hijacked it. The alumni and some of the well-meaning faculty and students could have a right to take it back. And that's what we're going to do. So do you just abdicate or do you start a new one? I think you can do both at the same time. And this is an example of a two-pronged approach. I have a fee, and you can see that a uh, new college will be much, I think, much more quickly a conservative or a disinterested college and will be up and running more than uh, University of Austin, just because it's it's so hard to do that. I know that Hillsdale right. College is, they have satellite uh, learning centers, but every time it's been broached to form a new campus, if you look at the Hillsdale infrastructure, what Larry Arndt did at Hillsdale, he built a billion dollars. When he, I mean, I'm not going to be too critical of his predecessor, but I went to Hillsdale in the 1990s and spoke, and that college is BA and AA before Arndt and after Arndt. Because before Arn, there were subterranean classrooms that were moldy. There was brick, brick. They were ugly. It, right. it, the faculty was overworked and underpaid. And after Larry Arn, the campus is stunning. It, it, it's it's beautiful. It's got one of the largest cathedral churches on, not just on campus anywhere. It's got all these programs it's got a, a world-class marksmanship program they've got world-class facilities it's a pleasure to teach in the classrooms and then it's got almost a billion dollar endowment and so how do you replicate that if it was to replicate it it would cost a couple of billion dollars and that's why it's hard even for hillsdale to replicate right. that and of you course, know, Th Thomas Aquinas did that, but they got an existing school. They did. You know, they when it did. expanded in New England. Yeah. So if you had to build all that from scratch, yeah, that's. Uh, and then the other uh, thing about Hillsdale is its model of not taking federal funds. I don't think these other court, these other campuses are going to follow that just simply because it's not just, well, we're not going to take federal money. It's, 
we, the federal government, are going to go after you if you do that, because that means we can't get your hands on our budget. We can't have affirmative action. We can't go into your uh, books and see how you what you're doing. We can't mandate uh, an affirmative action, all, all of that stuff. And what does it mean? It means they get they're vindictive. So it's not just, well, Hillsdale doesn't take money from the federal government. It means that a guy with a GI bill can't go to Hillsdale and use his GI bill. A guy with a federally guaranteed loan can't go in there with a federally guaranteed, they're that petty. It's any, any remote role of the federal government in financing a student or a scholarship, they say no. You cannot go to Hillsdale and use that money. So the, the government's not neutral. It's an active enemy of Hillsdale. And yet it survives. And the $64,000 question is, how many Hillsdales, A, can exist, and how many can be well run like that? And that's a tough question because Hillsdale raises anywhere from two to $300 million a year, well above uh, what they need because they're they're in this massive rebuilding program, infrastructure, endowment. The faculty have a very reasonable teaching load. They're very well paid now. They're excellent. I'm just I'm not trying to give up. Right. You're, you know, you're being very realistic. Yeah, I, yeah, I've been there. I've been there 21 years, and uh, I go there. I used to go there five weeks. I'll probably go there just a week this year. But I went there when I was 49 years old and taught two classes, you know, five days a week for five weeks, a whole semester, three or four hours long. And I watched this, the students who were wonderful then, and I looked at the infrastructure that was okay. But now when I go back there, the caliber of student is, I think, superior to Stanford or any place because it's merit-based admissions and everybody wants to right. go there. And I'm saying everybody, even liberal parents whose kids have 4.5s and perfect SAT, when they get turned down at Stanford or Harvard or Yale, and they do because of their skin color, they apply to Hillsdale. But Hillsdale's biggest obstacle is to is to retain their conservative traditional image because yeah. they're being swarmed now by people who are left wing and their attitude is, well, I'm left wing and my policies destroyed American education and they boomerang back on me and my kid didn't get into where I wanted. So I'll go to Hillsdale because I know it's safe. It won't right. be PC. They won't use racial discrimination and it will have a rigorous competitive curricula and wonderful faculty who are scholars. But I'm still left wing and they have to be careful because yeah. that would ruin their their. They can't censor a person just on their politics, but they have to be very careful that they don't bring in a lot of left-wing bicoastal people. But my point of all this is it's very hard to do what Hillsdale did. And everybody would like to see a Hillsdale medical school, law school, business school type of paradigm. And they're doing that. They have all sorts of you know, academies and curricula that they issue forth that people can adopt in in private school, charter schools. But at the university level, it's very, very difficult. And so we're going to see an effort increasingly either to create a new campus or to create uh, a new existing campus, I mean, to recalibrate or reboot it. And we're going to see efforts to, to see 
if you can make a campus that you know will never turn left wing because you're never going to take any federal money. And that's very hard to do. The other thing we can wish for, Victor, and before we get to your uh, Memorial Day remembrance, is that um, republic states that have Republican governors and Republican legislatures and, and have control over their state university systems would make some efforts to uh, de-wokeify those colleges under their control. Well, you're absolutely so, true. I, what I don't understand is... So New College now is in Florida and it's protected by the government there. And the University of Austin will get a very favorable reception from the Texas legislature and the governor. But Hillsdale College is in enemy territory. The state of Michigan is it goes after it all the time. It's a it's a blue state and it does not like Hillsdale for obvious reasons. And I, and yet it thrives. So oh. It's well, if you were going to found a college, you can't go to a blue state, supposedly, but maybe Hillsdale can t teach people how to do it. Yeah. I don't know. The only problem with Hillsdale is trying to get actually get there. Uh, maybe it's maybe someday there'll be an airport. Well, I had cool. a dream. We had a you know, that was a very controversial proposal, but I won't mention any names involved. But there was a couple in the United States near where I live that had an estate on the white waters of the king's river one of the most beautiful spots in the world hundreds thousands of acres and they were willing to partner with hillsdale and create a second campus but the problem was that once you deal with california and you look down the road and then you try to replicate an, a mother campus in toto in california then you come up with, well, we have to start from scratch with infrastructure. We have to build right. dorms. We have to build classrooms. We have no income coming in for tuition. We've got to then have an endowment uh, for the mm -hmm. satellite. And then when we look for help, we look at patterns where they've existed. Well, there was the St. John's in Mar Maryland, Annapolis. But then what happened to the St. John's in Santa Fe? In other words, there's not a there's not a record of when you have a, a successful college and you replicate it, does the replication compete with a mother campus or right. does it add? And nobody really knows. But anyway, the point I'm making is the cost factor was so enormous to, to create from nothing that both the landowners and Hillsdale decided to put it on hold. Right. I'm hoping well, one day it might happen, but it's, yeah, I, I, I was, I was involved just, and the negotiations, and I don't fault anybody. It was just a, it was just a, I had no idea how, what, and that's why I'm very sympathetic to what they're doing at University of Austin. And uh, it, at, there's other places that are trying to do it as well. There's just so many obstacles and money. Money is just going out the door before you get any coming back in. Well, we'll see on our next uh, podcast, Victor. We'll talk about uh, some some journalists' thoughts on California turning red. Maybe that, yeah, maybe that would be the 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 precedent for for uh, conservatism, uh, academic academic conservatism spreading in California. All right, Victor. We just have a few minutes left, and and I would like to uh, again. I talked about your book, The Second World. Uh, wars and the preface to the the book begins this with this the the more than three dozen missions carried out by my father William F Hansen in a B29 bomber over Japan 
were, were a world apart from his cousin's experience. Victor Hansen's war ended in a fatal May uh, 19th, 1945, rendezvous with a Nambu machine gun nest on the crest of Sugarloaf Hill with the 6th Marine Division on Okinawa. Both fought in a way foreign to their other cousin, Robert Hansen, who worked as a uh, logistician in um, Iran, ferrying American military freight to the Russians. That's how your very important book begins, Victor, uh, mentioning and essentially a tribute uh, to your uh, family member who you're named after. Would you, would you, and I think it's fitting, you know, it's Memorial Day. This is the day we remember those who gave, gave, paid the ultimate sacrifice, gave the ultimate sacrifice, gave their lives for their country. Would you tell us about him? And if you don't mind, I know there's a story about someone who served with Victor Hansen and a ring. Well, you know, uh, I was born in 53 and I'm 69. So my early years were, you know, I was born eight years after the end of World War II and then another 10 years I was 18. That's the same distance today as you're looking back to 9-11. So there was, it was very, everything was saturated in those, those years with World War II. I would get up on a Sunday morning and they'd have Bull Halsey narrate uh, submarine documentaries every Sunday morning. You know, I don't know what was called up in the deep or something, but it was a wonderful series about what the U.S. Navy submarine Corps or the TV shows would be Combat, or The Gallant Men, or 12 O'Clock High. And uh, movies were the longest day. I think that was 62 or what? So everything was saturated with World War II. It just was like 360-degree, 24-7 experience. And personally, when I would have Christmas or Thanksgiving, we would have these extended families because they were, you know, they were farm-like. And here would be my father, and they didn't like to talk, but, you know, they would talk about World War II, not to brag on each person's service, but to compare stories. So he would say something about, you know, flying uh, 40 times over Tokyo in a B-29 or uh, Korea or mining the harbors of Yokohama, but 40 combat missions and, and then emergency landings in Iwo or people in his crew. And then my aunt's husband, who was up in the illusions, would say, well, this is what it was like and how cold it was. And he got accidentally shot in the arm by a soldier. And he would tell that story. And then Bob Hansen, a guy from Kingsburg, they would say, well, you know, Bob was doing convoys to bring in Russian uh, to give Lend-Lease material and driving trucks and supervising to get the stuff through Iran into Russia. And my mom would say, oh, my poor first cousin, Holt, was killed with a bullet to the head, and you know, right after Normandy. And then suddenly, you know, up would Belden Cather would come out, his brother, and he had dinghy fever in the Philippines campaign, was disabled. So everywhere you taught, and then my grandfather, the old Swede, Frank Hansen, would say, oh, wow, you know, you boys had it really rough. You had it so much rougher than I did, you know, with my Lewis machine gun in World War One." And they'd say, no, no, Grant, Dad, you know, you, you got your lungs eaten out with phosphine gas. We didn't suffer like that. It was that way. It was just all the time. But um, 
which never was mentioned was that uh, Victor Hansen, who was my father's first cousin, my grandfather, great-grandfather had four boys, and they were all kind of big Swedes in a little town called Kingsburg. And two of the boys, uh, Frank Hansen and Victor Sr., were, you know, they were, Victor was blind. He got blinded in a sulfur machine accident. His wife died during childbirth. So their son only had one son who was kind of the same size, a little bigger than my dad, was 6'3 and 200 pounds. He was about 6'4 and 210. They were tight ends. They went to University of Pacific and played football, graduated there, and then they decided to join the Marines together as officers in this new 6th Marine Division, which was supposedly going to take a large number of people with bachelor's degree and incorporate all of the information learned by the 1st Marine Division uh, from Guadalcanal, etc. So they sent him to Guadalcanal to be trained and everything. But as I said in an earlier broadcast, something happened with, I don't know what it was. They wouldn't speak about it. Someone hit an officer. Someone took the rank and my dad got transferred out to a certain death in B-29s or so he was told. And then Victor, who was basically my dad's brother, they were that close um, because uh, he was, again, he had no parents and he was a single child. He was kind of raised by uh, both my grandfather and my grandfather's father, Nels Hansen. So anyway, uh, he went through the entire Okinawa campaign, uh, April's Fool's Day. They landed and the Marine Corps, you remember, it went up to the north of the island. They cleaned it, cleared it, and the army got was going southward and people failed to realize that the Japanese strategy as they had learned after Tarawa and Iwo was not to defend the beaches, but to dig in. They had a year to do it. Two stories, three stories down in solid coral with cement, reinforced concrete cement and machine gun nest everywhere. So and to seed them the northern part. So the army got in trouble. They've sent down the 6th Marine Division and it it got down there in early May, about a month afterwards, and suddenly Okinawa, the headlines were, if you look at, and I looked at, you know, and I wrote about it, early April, Marine Storm Okinawa, conquest soon to meat grinder, and suddenly all hell broke loose. The fleet couldn't, had to back off because there were thousands of kamikaze raids. It was the largest loss of life in any single battle of the U.S. Navy. 5,000 seamen were killed. 17 major ships were sunk. Aircraft carriers were disabled. Uh, it really affected the campaign. And nobody had really seen kamikazes at that level because they were only 350 miles from Japan. And they were kind of like a cruise missile on a one. You take a human brain, it was much more complex than a V V one rocket as far as navigation. And you put a 500 pound bomb and a zero could still go 300 miles and put it about eight feet above the water. How can you stop it? And it, it just racked, racked heavy. And then, of course, there were no Marine senior officers. And they when they got to the Shuri line, they said, we got to go around them. We have to have amphibious. No, 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 no. You Marines are, you know, you're going to go head on. So they sent the 6th Marine Division head on against the Shuri line. The Army couldn't break it. And they ended up at a place called Sugarloaf Hill, the final 
last redoubt of the Japanese. And uh, he, his regiment uh, was very successful and they took Sugarloaf Hill and he was killed in the last hours of the last day of that successful storming. And they weren't able to bring his body down for a day. I only say that, I think I mentioned it before because I'm, I wrote an essay in National Review about it, but uh, when I started to write about it, I wrote an article about it, and I got his commanding officer, I think Robert Sherrill, was 93. He wrote me a letter and enclosed. He said there was another person. Another person wrote and said they had called my grandfather and from San Diego when they came back with his personal effects in 1945, I think, December when they finally got their, the division, what was left of it. And the 6th Division was rendered combat, uh, combat insolvent. It was no longer combat ready after that. 16,000 people. They had a blend of first first Marine veterans in there. And the first division was there as well. Read about it and with the old read by E.B. Sledge or Goodbye Darkness by William Chancer. Manchester, a little bit less reliable. But uh, it, it destroyed the 6th Marine Division. And nobody in my family apparently wanted to talk to him. And so he never got some of his effects. I grew up, when I grew up, they named me after him. So they gave me all of his stuff. I, I remember going down to a little tiny farmhouse in Kingsburg and my dad handed me all this stuff. Louisville slugger, baseball mitt, baseball hat, baseball spikes, briefcase, books, a uh, couple of uh, leather jackets, all from Victor Hansen that were sealed, that my grandfather had sealed in this box. And, uh, and any in any case, they sent me a ring that they had cut off his finger, and that person had had it from 1945 until 2001, and he was oh. still alive and sent it to me. I won't get into names or details, but right. I still have that. It was, a, and I'm a classicist, so who would think? What would be the odds that it would be a Roman soldier, a, a military, an emulation of a military ring from a Roman legionary? Wow. But anyway, it was it affected that all these discussions about World War II, but it was always you didn't speak of it. And then would weird things would happen my entire life, like all of a sudden in my 40s, a woman about 75 showed up at my house and she my father had passed away and she had been his high school girlfriend. And her husband had died and she just came over all the time and she would sit down in the house. And she would talk about their first date. They're very innocent, you know, in those days. And she would say this, she wrote this letter and that thing. And then she would hand me a letter. And then I would show her the letters they gave me uh, from him. And then one day she said, we need a monument to your whole family. They all got sort of wiped out by World War II. Or, you know, your grandfather was gassed. Your father had some problems. Victor was killed. So the, in Kingsburg, California, in the park, there's something called Hanson Corner. It's not because they were just, there was a lot of military veterans, but that was their homestead. And when my great-grandfather, my grandfathers uh, gave that land with his brothers to the city of Kingsburg, where the homestead had been, and on the corner of that land, there was a stone marker now. So it has a little story of the family. But uh, it was it was quite an yeah. experience to to hear about all the things. So when I wrote about Okinawa in Ripples of Battle, I got all of his letters out, and and it was all pretty amazing about 
what a generation. And he wrote mm. to my, my grandfather and to my great-grandfather, his grandfather, and he'd say, Dear Grandpa, dear Uncle Frank, guess what? Gee whiz, I'm training in Camp Lejeune. It's so exciting. And then the next letter, we're out in Guadalcanal. All, all those boys who died secured the land for studying jungle. I've gone from 220 to 180 pounds. Jeez. Dear Uncle Frank, is there any way you can get me a, a 1911 semi-automatic pistol? They say you have a greater chance to live, but they're so expensive. Here's the address of a place in Fresno where you can find one and draws a picture of it. And, and then next one, is there any chance that, uh, or, you know, I'm very sorry. I didn't send my $50 this week that I promised that I'd send back to the family. I had to buy special boots for the campaign. It, it's pretty amazing. I only mention this on Memorial Day because we have this great chain of American civics, and we we cut it off somewhere around 2000 to 2010, and now we're we're completely disconnected with Memorial Day. What by that I mean, if I were to go onto the Stanford campus where I work, and I would just happen to bump into a student, and I would say to them, "Could you just tell me what was what happened on at Okinawa, or could you describe what was Pearl Harbor?" I'm not talking about a high school. I'm talking about a flagship. I don't think people could tell me that. And and yeah. if you said, do you think everybody should salute the flag or have a repertoire of American songs, God bless America, America the beautiful? No, they would say no. But yet, and this is what the killer is, the whole idea of free speech, mm -hmm. dissent, capitalist economy you walk through the stanford parking lot and you see i'm not kidding you you see lexus mercedes right. tesla right. from these are these are not 50 year olds these are 18 19 20 year olds this mm -hmm. whole material bounty freedom affluence leisure it was all predicated on certain type of people that and in victor's case they had no money at all I mean, his, he was an orphan, basically. And to take somebody who just won a scholarship and just graduated and send him to a god-awful place like Okinawa, and read about E.B. Sledge's description of what it was like there. Yeah. Uh, and then they die for all of this stuff. And then people don't even know anything about D-Day or the balls or anything they tell you about juneteenth but they can't tell you about uh, yeah they can tell you much less going back to what happened at gettysburg or shiloh yeah. or antietam they don't know anything and they take it for granted and it's really sad because i don't know if they were ever going to re re-inculcate right. that because it's not that they're just ignorant but they're ignorant in a very pernicious pathological right. sense that if you say to them you're ignorant because you should know about this. They say, well, that was just a racist white war or something like right. that. And they're, you know, I, I had this, I'll just finish by, I had a student once, I taught a class in the history of war. And I mentioned the Hiroshima campaign, Hiroshima bombing. And, and I was not pro, let's drop nuclear bombs on people. But I said, these were the reasons not to bomb Hiroshima with a nuclear weapon, and these were the reasons to do it, and you can decide. And this person goes, well, they just did it because they were Asians. And I said, are you sure about that? 
you don't think they wanted to stop the war? And I would say to them, they dropped it August 6th, and Okinawa was not just declared uh, occupied and the campaign over in late June, but not until July 12th when they made the final. So you're saying six weeks later, after 50,000 Americans had been wounded and 12,000 had been killed, and Okinawa was just a fraction of the 7 million Japanese who were ready to resist the invasion. You don't think that was one of the considerations? No. And I said, how about this one, that if you take the number of Chinese and Asian, Australians, English, Americans that were killed every day by the Japanese Imperial Army that had 2 million people under arms when the bomb was dropped, and you prorate the number of people they killed, it works out to about 20,000 a day, a day. So maybe they wanted to stop this Japanese killing machine that was murdering innocent civilians. And they stopped it because after those two explosions, they surrendered and then people were not being butchered in places like Southeast Asia or the Pacific or China. How's that? Nothing. He didn't know anything about that. I don't know about that. Mm. I don't know. I don't know. I don't think the Japanese killed people. I don't think that we did. Oh my gosh! You know that that you can't. If you say to a college student today, the one army in World War II that, in terms of killing people, civilians and soldiers, versus how many people were lost, civilians and soldiers, what was the most lethal military? It was the Japanese army. The Japanese army killed more civilians and soldiers, Chinese, Asians in general, Pacific, British, Australian, Canadian, Americans, versus all of it, all of the ones they lost in combat and all the people who died on the Japanese mainland, it still had the highest kill ratio, more than the Russian army, more than the German army, more than the American army. People do not understand that. So, wow, you know, you can well, say that I the American... Americans may have killed a million people in World War II. I don't know if we did that. I doubt that. But the Japanese were responsible probably for 20 million dead. 15 million to, a, 16, 15 to 16 million dead in China from 39 or maybe going 50 back. Question. Victor, I think someday a 50-question Victor Davis Hanson test on American history would be a good thing to uh, put forth and to It's very frustrating. Uh, it's very frustrating. With, yeah. I, I mean, I'm an ancient historian, so I don't even I don't even think that a student might want to know what the Battle of Marathon or Thermopylae was like, or yeah. what was the significance, or you know. But if you don't know what Gettysburg is, Gettysburg. Yeah. It's just right. it's just and what did we get? We and for for junking, destroying that entire legacy and knowledge of history and what it meant for the formation of the Western society and Americans in particular, what do we get in exchange? Professor Kendi, hmm. what's, who's a racist or, or the, Mr. I, Mulvaney lecturing us about how many days he's transitioned to a woman on a bud commercial. That's what we get. And so I don't know what's going to, you know, it's very important. No society can exist long if it doesn't believe that it's exceptional, it's better than the alternative, or right. that it has a, a distinguished legacy that makes it singular. If you're a society and you say, well, we're racist, we're sexist, we're horrible, we're horrible, we're horrible, we're horrible, 
the rest of the world goes, yeah, I agree with you. You're right. Yeah. And if there's no longer any reason for you to exist, then then you don't yeah. exist. Well, you know, Barack told us, yeah, we're exceptional. Just he like, started. The yeah, more you get older, the more you. I'll just finish with this today. The more you get older. When you look at who took an obscure idea of diversity and mainstreamed it as everybody who is not white now suddenly has a claim against the majority, all 30% of America, uh, and we are not exceptional, and we're going to look at everything in racial terms for a change, and we're going to reject Martin Luther King, and we're going to go into the Middle East and say, you know, Iran is just as valid as Israel. When you look at the whole totalitarian totality of our problems today, domestic and forum, they can be traced right back in large part to Barack Obama. Amen, my friend. All right, we, we are, we are, uh, we got to wrap this up. Um, I, I'm sorry to say that because we, no, we, we should do. have a special show on him. Not that we haven't talked about him a lot in the past. Victor, at the end of these podcasts, right? What do we do? We thank our listeners for listening, no matter what platform they do that on. And those in particular, who listen on iTunes and Apple and can leave ratings, zero to five stars. Many do, mostly five stars. The average of the show over now two years, 4.9 something uh, stars. Thank you very much. Those who leave comments, thank you for taking the time to do that. And please know that we do read them all. And here is one from outdoor painter Gwen, who writes uh, headlines, just love VDH podcasts and writes... Victor, love these podcasts. I do have to say that the septic system one should come with a warning, LOL. I spent some of my youth working on a ranch. I love when you talk about the challenges and dangers of farming. No one understands what ranch life is really like unless they lived it. I can relate to the memories versus the cost of upkeep. When I look at our ranch, the orchard is long gone. Dad had the trees pulled as as the cost to spray based uh California agricultural requirements was often times more than the value of the crop. So we pulled them, pulled them out and ran cattle. Thanks for for these podcasts. Love the history and your ability to relate them to today's events. Your voice is so important. And I look forward to learning something new with each episode. Love your Raisin Farmer segment and your insights on all things. Best always to you and your family, Georgia. W, that's outdoor painter Gwen. We thank you, Gwen. Victor, you were great today as ever. Thanks very much for all the wisdom you shared. Thanks to our listeners for listening. Do visit civilthoughts.com and sign up for the free weekly email newsletter. I, Jack Fowler, write for the Center for Civil Society and American Philanthropic. You'll love it. We'll be back soon with another episode of the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Bye-bye. Thank you, everybody, for listening. 